Welcome to Can We Talk? Taxes, Trustees, and Entrepreneurs. Certified Public Accountant Carol Felsing shares her years of expertise with you to help you make the best financial decisions possible. She founded Felsing LLC in 2013 after years of experience working in national, regional, and local firms. And now, here's your host, Deborah Hendrickson, and of course, Carol Felsing. Hello, and welcome back to Can We Talk? We learned during our last two podcasts what's involved in starting a small business and about small business banking and why you need a personal banker. Now, after years of success, it's time to sell. What are the tips for selling a business? Our host today is Carol Felsing, joined by her guest, Dina Jalbert. Dina leverages nearly 20 years of success in building, scaling, buying, and selling businesses to accomplish your client's goals. As a CPA with an MBA, her career experience spans many years in big four accounting and consulting firms, in addition to holding executive positions with Fortune 500 and hyper-growth middle market companies. As founder and CEO of Align Business Advisory Services, Dina has completed nearly $2 billion in merger and acquisitions. Dina has been recognized as a leader in her field, earning distinctions as a rising star of merger and acquisitions by M&A Advisor Magazine. Align, headquartered in Winter Park, serving clients nationwide, was named the best mid-market M&A consultancy in the Southeast for the past four years. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to have you here. Dina, as the introduction said, works a lot in the M&A world, mergers and acquisitions. And with our business, we've talked a little bit about small businesses, starting them, growing them. And at some point, we decide it's time to cash out or exit leave, them. exit the business. So with that being said, how do people know when it's time to exit? It's such a hard question to answer, right? It, I always say it's it's kind of like when you decide whether to get married or to have kids. There's never a perfect time. It just, it just is. Uh, that said, you know, there's many ways to look at timing in terms of exiting your business. So one is just personal need. Uh, you know, a lot of our clientele will say, I've just been doing this for so long and, and I'm ready for a new challenge or I'm not as excited about the business as I used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that is a first tell is to say, okay, well, maybe I should start mm-hmm. thinking about this a, a bit more. The second kind of tell that, that tends to come, and especially today we hear this more and more, is you start becoming approached by potential acquirers. You know, you get a phone call or some emails or, you know, things will start to kind of start coming in. And, and I always joke that that's the market kind of telling you maybe, hey, today, you know, it might might be time. And then the third, I would say, driver is for the owners who think that the business can grow substantially, but know that it's going to take some help to get to that next stage right. and phase. So all, all three of those, albeit very different, are good signals. But really, at the end of the day, it's up to the owner to kind of personally, introspectively look and say, okay, am I ready for a change? Is now the time? And start planning well in advance of that moment. <laughs> well, let's lead right off on that question. With all of our clients, when you go to sell the business, the ones that are most successful, the ones I have worked with mm-hmm. that have had the most successful in turning over their their baby, so to speak, to somebody else and getting remuneration for their years of hard work building that business, they've always planned in advance and haven't had someone come to them and say, let's sell the business. So tell me what you think about 
when you go to develop that exit strategy, how far should you start planning in advance? And what are some things you typically have them do? Because I know you work in that area and that's what you do. A hundred percent. So uh, as much as I say the market will start to tell you sometimes, you can take advantage of those opportunities if you've done some groundwork beforehand and just made good business practice out of out of some things. You know, the first thing, and I know you'll agree with this, is get your financials in order. Yes. Uh, <laughs> And whether or not you're going to exit your business, that's just good business practice, right? right? Is to have a good command of of your financials. A lot of small business owners are what we jokingly call tax efficient, yeah. uh, <laughs> and so and you know that's right, wrong, or indifferent. But it does cause some challenges when you when you go to exit. And so working with a CPA like yourself to get that all kind of cleaned up and straightened out is is first and foremost. The second being preparing, make sure you have all your books and records too. So, you know, your legal contracts, you know, many business owners forget that a lot of business contracts have assignment clauses in them. So if you want to exit your business, you have to go ask someone else's permission to do so. Like usually we see those in leases or big customer contracts or things like that. And you may have signed that contract 10 years ago and not have really thought much about it until now all of a sudden you're in that that position. So I'd say books and records, financials, uh, and then thinking about what growth can look like, whether you're with the business or you're not. And in either case, you have to be able to articulate to a buyer, hey, I'm handing you some growth. And what does that look like? And think through that strategy. Um, and then come to terms with valuation. I would say have conversations with some, again, your CPA, wealth managers and strategists. I know you help folks with that to a certain extent too. And think through what you personally need to come from a transaction because it just allows you to be more objective. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a very emotional process. You know, my business is worth $100 million and then someone tells it's only worth 50. There's frustration in that, but was it rooted in a place of, of understanding value in the market? Is it rooted in a place of you went and your wealth manager said you need 50 to live for you know, however long and in the lifestyle you want? You know, the answer to that, both of those is probably no. And so then you're making decisions in a very emotional and kind of reactive way. So doing all those things just allows you to go through the process prepared, uh, strategic and objective, which as you laid out is is what drives success. Right. And I think we talk about valuations and I've seen it on both ends. Mm-hmm. First people thinking their business is worth way more than what it is mm-hmm. because especially in some businesses when you're dealing with a key player, mm-hmm. They've got to replace that key player and how much of that business is going to follow. That's right. More so in the service industry than others. Or you've had a gentleman working in that business for 60 years, and he really has no idea what his business is worth. So I think that's where when you're looking to sell your business, you don't want to just hire just a broker. That's right. You don't want to hire just a broker. You want to hire someone that's going to say, based on our analysis, this is what we think your business is worth and why. Mm-hmm. And these are the things that you could do from now on next year or two to help. You know, one of those key things is typically an owner is going to run his car through the business. It's going to run some personal stuff that, you know, we don't see. But, you know, if they do that, really that stuff needs to come off and clean up your books because that affects the bottom line. The bottom line affects how much they're going to pay you for your business. That's right. I always say if you do anything for the tax man, he comes and finds it at some other point in time, right? You know? Accelerated depreciation is a good example. You take that all those years and you get that benefit, then you go to exit and oh wait, now I gotta give some of that back. back. Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, and and that leads into transaction structure and what's allocated and all sorts of things. But really, uh, you bring up a good point about valuation. Those who tend to think it's worth more than it is, 
don't really haven't had anyone really kind of pull pull the layers back. And as you mentioned, look at all the components of the business because your financials tell one story. But we have a saying in our firm that every dollar isn't created equal. If you make $100 million in revenue, but you have to spend 99 of them you know, to generate that 100, that's not as valuable as something that you only have to spend you know, half as much, right? So margins matter. And a lot of business owners surprisingly can't speak to why their margins are what they are. And right. so when we talk about you know, preparing your financials, it's one thing to have them be complete but then also to be able to explain, you know, the, the variances in your business. And then there's components of your operations that you have to think really hard about. You laid a great example about the business owner who, if they go away, so does a lot of the business. So you have to think about who are your key management and succession planning? Right. Who's your right and left arm? And do they want to run this without you? Right. Oftentimes you'll think, well, yeah, they can. They might be able to, but do they do they want to if you've right. been together for you know so long? And maybe they do, maybe they don't. You don't know. Similarly, you have to look at your customers. You know, I say product or service, whoever your core end customer is, if, you know, 25% or more of your sales goes to any one customer, that's a concentration risk that is looked at in the same light as that manager who leaves and leaves a third of business. If you've got one key customer who catches wind of this acquisition once it closes and goes, yeah, no, I don't want to work with those people. Uh, I've had a chance to in the past and I'm just not interested that devalues a business, those those types of risks. Uh, so firms like ourselves, like to your point, you know, there'll be, there's a lot of tools out there, you know, punch in some numbers and we'll tell you what your business is worth or you, know, you can call some brokers or, or others. You know, our firm, we put together a full uh, data book and underwrite a full transaction and ask those questions. Tell us about your customers. Tell us about your revenue mix. Tell us about your margins. We do all that under NDA long before anyone even engages with us because we only think it's fair to help our clients understand all of those pieces and parts right. of what makes a successful transaction. And so we'll give them the good news if it you know, all pans out the right way. But then we'll also just say, hey, listen, you've got some gaps here. So you've got a choice. You know, you can move today and just know that you're going to probably tick down a little bit because of that and be comfortable with it. Or, hey, go take two years, do these 10 things. You know, we'll check back with you quarterly and just make sure everything's chucking along or we can help you with those things either way. And then it sets them up for a better set. We just met with a group on Friday in that exact same situation, very high-growing business, but they had no management. Like, go get yourself some management. And, you know, and if you need help recruiting for that, we'll, we'll help you recruit for that. But you need to get those right and left arms in there. You're a little too lean to, to go out and get what you want. And they were so appreciative of that. And and I think that's a, a key. But patience is key. Right. And I know, I think... When we talk to businesses like that, I, mean, I deal with it regularly. A broker will come by and say, your business is worth so much money, and they get all hyped about it. And yet, let's take an example. They say, okay, we can get $16 million for your business. And that sounds like a very big number to some people. But then when I go and tell them, I say, but you've been pulling out $4 million a year to live off of. You get $16 million. After tax, you may get down. You're, now you're down to $12 million. And if you're only going to get four five percent on that money, you're looking look at six hundred thousand. Can you change your lifestyle from four million to six hundred thousand? And they never think about that. No, I always joke. Your wife likes a certain type of handbag. She ain't going backwards. Yeah. So make sure, yeah. <laughs> you know. And and similarly, you know, I, many clients, and I know this happens too, Carol. They'll, they'll say, "Well, I only pay myself one hundred fifty thousand a year," and then well, okay, but the cars and the business. Your vacations are in the business. You know, we've seen some 
professional education, air quote, that is, you know, private schools and things. And, you know, the tax efficiency I referred to earlier, and listen, we always tell folks, we're not here to judge it. We just need to know what that is so that we can pull those things out and, and have that be a little bit more transparent and clear as to what the true run rate of the business would be for mm-hmm. someone after the fact. And But you're exactly right. It, you have to think about what you need to live on and what that next chapter looks like so that you can make sure that the outcome of this meets those needs. Right. And you're talking about stuff in the, in the business from a CPA's perspective. If we're just doing a tax return, we get them to sign that everything is true and correct, right? Yep. And so we're not going and looking, you know, do you have that in education? Do you have that in insurance? Mm-hmm. We're not looking for that. You're telling me it is. Mm-hmm. And so then when we tell them that devalues the business, well, then they can find all this stuff that they want to pull out. But the problem is you need to have done that a year or two in advance. 100%. You can't do it just fly by night. Uh, we tell a lot of clientele that come to us with really messy financials, no, go, go put the legwork in first. It'll right. pay for itself in the end. Uh, you know, quality of earnings analysis are, are good things to look at and do. They, they can be expensive, but depending on the size of the transaction, that's a decent investment. And that's, you know, for those who don't know what that means, it's it's like an audit, but what it does is it, it takes your existing financials and then layers in a bunch of adjustments to kind of get at what, what the normalized business and, and working capital would be. But for a company who's never had an audit or a review or, to your point, never had anyone look in there, it's a heavy lift. Uh, you know, we've had a few companies come to us here just in the beginning of the year, anxious to like get started, but they couldn't speak to any details of the financials. And in today's macroeconomic backdrop, the lenders are very uh, picky right now right. and underwriting very tightly. So you have to have clean financials. So we're seeing more and more of that and us pushing more folks to folks like yourselves to, to get that work done. And I know when we talk about I'm one of the, um, you would be one of the professionals they bring aboard. I typically, as a CPA, would be another professional. Who else would you bring aboard if you're looking at doing this? Oh, so great. Such a great question. I always say no one person can do it. That's why I love your analogy earlier. Like the broker's like, well, I can go get you, you know, X amount of money. Well, gosh, that's great. You must be Superman or woman because it takes a team of people to really help guide any business owner through it. So, you need a group like ourselves, you know, a good MA uh, advisor or investment bank. And I, and I say that, especially if you're a larger, smaller business, you know, I always say the ones that are maybe too big to be small, but too small to be enterprise, those that kind of you know, sit in the middle there, there's a complexity to your business that small business brokers and some other true SMB resources don't fully appreciate or understand the context or have the toolkit with. So having someone who's focused on M&A and is very strategic about it is is key because at the end of the day, deals are available, but they have to, it has to be the right one. And you only know that if you're out there talking to the community every day. Right. Secondly, good CPA, not just for your management books, but tax planning. And then also there's a lot of tax structuring that goes into a transaction, as you well know. Yeah. And that's, you got to have someone who who's done deals and who's familiar with the different types, you know, asset sales, stock sales, how to allocate, you know, based on any physical assets and things like that. That's that's key. A wealth manager, as we were just having that conversation, so that you know what your number needs to be. But not only that, what you're going to do with these proceeds when the transaction is is finished. Because I tell clients all the time, if the bank account you're going to give me to have your proceeds wired into is the same one that your mortgage gets pulled from, you haven't you haven't wealth managed what, you, what, you <laughs> what, what you know what you're going to do with this money and where it's going to go and 
you know, and depending on your age and tax, all, all sorts of considerations, many will turn to us and say, well, can't you, you know, what do you think? I'm like, we are not registered investment advisors. That is not our core strength. So a good wealth manager, an excellent attorney, I can't, and one that does M&A. Yes. <laughs> so in Florida, we get a lot of, oh, my cousin's an attorney. Oh, that's fantastic. Great. What firm is he with or she with? Oh, well, he or she's a real estate attorney or he or she's a healthcare attorney or, you know, a general business attorney. And those are all great in their individual realms. But if they've not done a frequent number of, of transactions, they don't have best practices in how to truly mitigate that risk for you. So we keep a very lengthy list of great uh, transaction attorneys throughout the country because we've just seen so many deals fall apart. I once worked with an estate attorney in one, and he was so well-intended, but he'd never done a deal before. And um, it was it was a it was a real struggle, and we got there in the end. But you know, it was a significant amount of money for a multi-generational family that could have gone sideways, you know, very quickly without the right people. So those are the ones I would say at the very least any any uh, seller has to have. And so I always joke, we're all like a football team, right? You know, Tom Brady can't throw to himself. He can't defend for himself. You have to have all the players on the team to get the ball in the end zone. So, you know, going and getting those folks. And, and then, you know, for us, we always pull those people in at the very beginning. You know, let's all start talking about what the strategy needs to look at. You know, I don't want to call you when we've got a letter of intent in hand and you're like, well, there's not much I can do at this point, Dina. You know? Right. Or I may have, you may need it by by Tuesday. You know, today is Friday and I may have all this stuff ahead of it. And same with an attorney. That's right. It's, we're not just sitting waiting. Nope. But I do think for both the CPAs and the investment advisors and the attorney, they really need to have experience in this area because mm-hmm. being a jack of all trades means you're master of none. Right. I was compared to kind of the cheesecake menu, cheesecake factory menu. There's just so much on there. You like yeah. really can't be the best at every single thing. So, yeah. you know, it, and divide and conquer. And then it just also makes a, a, a as a seller, if I were doing that for myself, I would feel good that I've checked all these boxes. I got all these really smart people around me and made sure that this, because you get one shot. That's what we always say. You get one shot to make your deal. Make sure it's the best one. We were just brought one by an attorney. And he called me and he said, Dean, I think this might be the worst deal I've ever seen. And I was like, wow, I know this gentleman very well. And he does a lot of deals. So I was like, that's saying something. Mm-hmm. He sent me the draft purchase agreement. And sure enough, it, it, it is probably one of the worst, <laughs> worst deals I've ever seen. But this family went on it on its own, got it to like the five-yard line, and then finally started putting a, pulling advisors in. I was like, well, there's not a lot at this stage that, you know, mm-hmm. we can do because you, you know, just kind of all brought us in at, at the end. And mm-hmm. so the, the sooner the better, even if it's years, I think in some cases, you know, years before you're thinking about doing it, and it's never too early to start. Yeah, I tell them two years. Yeah. that you, you need to really start on this two years in advance because um, that's, but that you get people involved, you have time to put a strategy, you have two years of good financials that they can look at without all the extra benefits that go to some of the owners. So really two years is the mark before you start. And even before that, if you think, okay, you know, I'm, I know I'm going to need to do this in five years. What things should I be doing now or looking now, you know? And the, then it kind of perks your ear too. So you'll know they may consider that. So if I have a buyer coming along, right, mm-hmm. you can place and maybe have a strategic buyer. And so we've hired your firm as a mergers and acquisition advisor how do you go about finding those buyers for these businesses? That's, a, that's like the, the literal million-dollar question. So um, 
I spend most of my time talking to the investment community. These are private investors, financial investors like private equity funds or family offices or many different, they come in many different flavors. I say it's like Baskin Robbins, there's you know, 31 flavors. Um, so I spend my time understanding you know, what they're investing in, what their strategy is, what's of interest to them, uh, what's going on, and pay a lot of attention to market dynamics. Um, watch what they're acquiring, investing. You know, we pay very close attention to the acquisitions that private corporations or public corporations, frankly, for that matter, are doing because it gives you insight into, okay, this is their strategy, what they're trying to do. And so then when a client comes to us, we'll go, huh, you know what? fits really great into their strategy, that's a group we would want them to talk to. The only way you have access to that is by doing deals with these folks and also creating relationship. I mean, right. it really is. I spend my time uh, at least once a month on the road and or on the phone constantly with these groups uh, and, and really vetting that. And you watch certain groups over the years and, and know that they're just really good at it, you know. Right. And so... And with that comes the knowledge of how they do their deals as well. It's not just who they are, but it's also we've done a lot with this group. I know when they go to negotiate the tax allocation that they're going to try to put, you know, so much here and we're going to get in front of that, right? right. Or, you know, you just kind of have an, an, an awareness. But but really what's how we do that is um, before we even get started with a client, we sit down and we have those conversations uh, around growth strategy, but then personal succession. You know, how long does the business owner want to stay in the business? Because that is the biggest thing that really directs what pool of buyers one way or the other. Right. You know, if, if this is an owner who's been in it 60 years and is ready to golf permanently, fantastic. That's not a wrong answer, but it is if we present you to someone who wants every owner to stay on for five years, right? right. That's not a, a personal match. Um, and then you have to pair it with this, the stage of the business and the scale of where it is and, and what level of support it's going to need and what's the opportunity. And, and those three things in our world merge together to then define who's who's the right buyer and the, and the best buyer. Uh, that group that I mentioned that had the most terrible deal, uh, when they were referred to me, I immediately knew who to call. Uh, picked up the phone and I asked them, I said, do you mind if I call this group? You know, Worst case is they say no and you say no, but at least you vetted it. But I think they're a perfect fit. And sure enough, that phone call was on a Friday. They all met on a Wednesday and hopefully today an offer should be coming through. And Oh, wow. And they're going to get out from underneath that really nasty deal. And and that's exciting. So, um, and the only way we knew that is because I knew that group. I knew their experience. I knew that they were rolling up in this industry. I knew that it was local. I knew that these two companies knew each other. And so it was really just kind of a, you know, and that's the case for, for many. And that's why when some owners will say, well, I just do this myself. People are calling me directly. Right. You shudder too, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, I know you can't see that because it's a podcast, that's but right. I, yeah, I literally just... Yeah, you know, and and but they might not be the right one, you know. And sometimes we've seen like bad buyers come in and try to offer really big prices because they know it's you know not the right fit, so they have to pay a premium. Uh, and and you know, I would say most of our clientele usually take the second or third best offer in terms of enterprise value because it's all, as you know as well, how the deal is structured. Uh, you know, if someone says I'm going to pay you twenty million, but I'm only going to pay you two today, and the other eighteen at some other undefined point in time in the future. Well, that's not a very good deal in, in, in my opinion, right? And so you would know these things uh, and you know, nine out of 10 times we know who that group is and go, wait a minute, like, what is that structure about? We've seen you do it different other ways. And so anyway, so that was a long answer to your question. It's all through uh, just doing deals and, and having grown relationships and seeing these groups work over and over and over again. And yeah. 
And I, I too have been on the seeing these deals come through. Like I had one that the broker said, well, he didn't need to sign the agreement just to have the client sign. I'm like, yeah, but if you don't sign the agreement, it's not enforceable in the state of Florida. I mean, but he's gotten people to do that. Mm-hmm. So now he doesn't have to enforce mm-hmm. whatever he's had. Or we've seen the same, like you said, yeah, we're going to give you $20 million. We're going to give you $2 million today. But the remaining $18 million is going to be whether you make these marks or not. Mm-hmm. Well, the person that sold has no control over the people he brings in to handle that business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, do you want to take $16 million and get paid more up front? Or you mm-hmm. take, so I think that's something they need to think about entirely when you're looking at these contracts. Yeah, structure um, is everything. You know, the, the what is the headline price, the how is, is equally as important for sure. And you know, I want to go back to something else you uh, mentioned. Everyone thinks, well, I sell a business is just selling a business. Well, no, there's a stock sale, right? And with that stock sale, if I buy your company, I'm buying your stock, I'm taking responsibility for all the liabilities that are sitting out there that I may or may not know. Mm-hmm. While that's a better deal for the seller, right? Not so good for the buyer mm-hmm. because the buyer's not, not going to get a step up in basis for all those assets. So tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, 100%. So there's many ways to structure a transaction. It starts with what the legal entity of the selling business is to begin with. So if you're a C corporation, uh, and correct me if I go any which way that you don't agree with, but... Uh, in our experience, it's been if, if you're a C corp, you want to do a stock sale, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise, you know there are you could do a 338 H election and and do these things and restructure, but there's a cost associated with that. Now, if a buyer is really focused on doing that, what we often will do is just say, okay, well that extra tax you have to cover, that, right. you know, that's right. added on to the purchase price because you're asking for this for your benefit. To your point, they want right. the step up in basis and the relinquish of liability. But nine out of 10 times, if a client comes to us and they're a C-Corp, we would advise, and their attorney would usually as well, you know, it's a stock sale because you are, um, you're a C-Corporation. Especially if you have contracts. That's right. That have to be with that with that particular entity. That's right. We sit a lot in healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because a lot of their uh, contracts and the things that they do pair contracts on are tied to the entity uh, versus the individual Physician. physicians. Mm-hmm. But in Florida, uh, and, and really across the country, but it's predominantly more prevalent in Florida because it's a no income state. You see a lot of pass through entities, so mm-hmm. LLCs and S corps and, and things, and so that's different. It can kind of be treated either way, depending on the structure and the the want and desire. But to your point, it's more advantageous for the seller to relinquish the liability if they can, Mm. you know, because you just never know. It's a crazy, we all learned recently, right? It's a crazy world that we live in and we just don't know what's going to happen. And so two years from now, something pops up that relates to pre-transaction. Well, you're liable for it depending on the timelines and tails and things that are structured. If there's a stock sale, nope, it, it all still sits with the purchasing entity, which is nice. Most buyers don't want that. They want an asset transaction so they can get the um, the basis. And, and also, especially in service businesses, the goodwill that can be amortized and offset future taxes. Um, and there's a... You know, there's a benefit to that. Like if the seller is going to stay on in that business and continue to have maybe a smaller portion of equity, that tax benefit benefits them as well. So you have to take all these you know, different things into consideration. But but to your uh, exact question, many different ways to structure it. So mm-hmm. selling a business isn't just a, a widget, you know. It's not cookie cutter. No. You may sell your business differently than I sell my business right. be, just because it's what the business is best at or what, what assets they're selling. 
And that that's one thing you really don't do well on your own. That's it's a hundred percent right. And you wouldn't know. I I always compare it to like I had to go to the dentist today, and you know he tells me, and I say, uh huh, yeah, you know. But yes, because what do I know? You know, yeah. I could do my own crown, but it's probably a really bad idea, right? Yeah. So it's kind of the same concept. We all, all all only know what we know, and that's not bad. It's not a slight against any of us. Entrepreneurs, though, we tend to also be, um, you know, just uh, hustlers in that we'll figure it out. Right. M and A is not something you can figure out. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for twenty four years now almost, and I learn something new every day. So right. it's it's not so to your point, cookie cutter. We always tell a clientele that. Businesses are like people. Everyone is different. Even if they're in the exact same industry, uh, every you know every business is different for all the things that you mentioned. And with that will come different structural needs you know, and values. One of the things I've been seeing a little bit lately in the world that you typically didn't see a lot of in the past is it's more in the IT world, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm going to sell part of my business, mm-hmm. but I'm going to get part of your business in exchange. So I'm not selling at all. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get some cash out, mm-hmm. but I'm going to take a chance on your business doing really well with this and take that stock. How much are you seeing that? A ton. I would say at this point, 90% of our clientele are selling into structures like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because over the last 15 years, there has been a huge influx of these private investors, so private equity funds, venture capital funds, growth equity funds, that have been raised focused on smaller businesses uh, in in earlier stages with the idea being, you know, hey, listen, we're going to come and invest in your business. We'll buy 60 70%. You keep the other 30 40 20 30 40s, is usually kind of the three buckets we see. But we're going to help you grow it to be something much bigger. So it's that age-old, like, okay, you can own 100% of five or you can own 30% of 500, mm-hmm. right? And, and so... The way that works is, you know, so say you, know, you sell your business for $20 million and and you roll 30%. So you reinvest, to your point, $6 million into this now new buying entity that's going to be bigger. They're going to then buy other companies like you uh, and grow those companies organically as well. So then all of a sudden, you're now a part of a $500 million business. And they're going to turn around and, and exit that investment at some predetermined time, on average, it's five to seven years, although lately we've been seeing those turn a, a little more quickly. But on average, it's five to seven years. So that $6 million, on average, is worth four times, you know, for every dollar. So, you'll, you know, you do really well on your 70% sale, you know, and the other $14 million you take home, and that's in the bank and accruing, you know, interest and, and invested well, hopefully, with the team uh, that we all strategize around. But that six million, you then get another twenty-four yeah. in the future, and then all of a sudden, your opportunity has become, you know, twice as big. And traditionally, smaller businesses have always looked at M and A as saying, "Okay, well, I'm going to sell my business to a competitor, and that's it. Like that's my one path, or an ESOP, uh, which is a you sell it to the employees, because th- those were the only two paths. Right. But for fifteen, you know, maybe twenty years ago, now you're seeing all this private investment, and to give you some perspective. Roughly 15 years ago, private investors only invested about 13-ish percent of their portfolio in in these what are known as buy and build strategies. Now it's 78 percent of their portfolio strategy. Mm-hmm. So it's gone up like tremendously. So with that has come trillions of dollars. So that will get a lot of clients. I'm like, I don't even know who these people are. I've never heard of them before. Well, who's calling me? Mm-hmm. Especially industries right now that are are really hot. Tech has always been a haven for that. But interestingly enough, we're seeing it in 
those essential businesses that we all came to know in COVID. So your roofers, HVAC folks, your waste management pests, you know, the industrial service providers that once the world stopped had to keep going and it made investors go, well, huh, that's pretty pretty recession resistant. So let's go buy 20 of those and, and create an, an entity. So we had a, a number of clients who were part of an HVAC platform that traded in December of 2020. And uh, it was comprised of 25 heating and air conditioning contractors throughout the Southeast, and it sold for a billion. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a good day. That was a great day. You know, and it's funny. We've been around long enough now, which I love. I get those second, we call them the second bite phone calls. When that second transaction takes place, we'll get a call like, yeah, just got my wire. It's fantastic. And then oftentimes what they see the power of it. So some of our younger clientele will continue to roll some money. I have a client who's now on a third turn of of that particular platform. So it's really great to see. So, you know, we were talking earlier about how in the beginning you really have to structure your individual needs, you know, in these buying bill strategies, they traditionally want you to stay on for a while right. to help grow and get that that equity value up. So you have to be willing and wanting to do that. You know, but that, that big return on the other side is supposed to be the carrot that you chase. Which is why we need to get early on this, because if you want to get out in two or four years, you need to get on that now because by you staying on, it's going to solidify that business for the for the buyer. Mm-hmm. It's going to help you bring their management team around you, see what you do, teach what's going on, so that business, your little baby, doesn't go down the tank. That's so, right. So I think that's one key. So if you're adamant about getting out tomorrow, you've got to be willing to take a haircut on the price. You do. And that's one of those things when I, I spoke earlier about uh, we'll lay all that out in the beginning because I think that's really important data point. You can say, hey, listen, you know, uh, again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's mm-hmm. completely personal preference. If you say to me, nope, I really just want to maximize cash today, I'll maybe stick around for a year. That's perfectly fine. Your transaction value and its structure will just look different, and that's what here's what this will look like. And then we model it a different way. Well, have you thought about if you did this, this is what this would look like? And it's often a data point they hadn't thought of before right? because they just didn't. That's why I love doing um, conversations like this, and I appreciate the opportunity because it's all about that education for a right. business owner to go, oh, I had no idea that that was even a thing. That's interesting to me. Yeah, because we don't know what we don't know. That's right. We just don't know what you don't know. I really appreciate your insights on this M&A world, and feel free to call Dina and Align if you ever have any questions about M&A. She'll be happy to talk to you just gratis to say where should you go from here. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you so very much. Thanks again for listening to Can We Talk? If you have any questions, you can reach out to Carol at Felsing LLC at phone 407-412-9299 or felsingcpa.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we continue our conversation with Carol Felsing, partner with Felsing LLC. You've been listening to Can We Talk? Taxes, trustees, and entrepreneurs. Please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts, connect with us on social, and submit any tax-related questions to info at felsingcpa.com.